Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add two new fellows to our team. We are thrilled to be adding these positions. We've got so much great content in the pipeline that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. I'm talking big time projects that are going to make a big impact on surgical education. We've got specialty oral board review, medical student education, digital education research, and a trauma surgery video atlas, just to name a few. We're looking for a couple of enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns and spearhead one of these major projects, not to mention help with the podcast, video, and other ongoing, exciting, behind-the-knife goodness. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2022 and ending June 2024. Only residents beginning their two-year research time will be considered, and the residents' institutions and the mentor must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due May 25th. Uh, welcome everybody to the Behind the Knife podcast. Um, I'm Adam Yope, uh, the Chief of Surgical Oncology at uh, UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I'm, I have the pleasure of being joined uh, by two of my favorite people, uh, Gilbert Marimo of uh, UT Southwestern in Dallas as well. He's a, a surgical resident who will be going into surgical oncology in the future. And I'm joined by one of our former residents, uh, Dr. Caitlin Hester, who's currently a fellow in sur- complex surgical oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Um, today, we are tasked with incredibly interesting and I think more dynamic topic than probably it was 10 years ago. And that's discussing both borderline and locally advanced uh, pancreas adenocarcinoma. Um, I think as the data has progressed, it's becoming much, much more interesting. I think the the first thing that I think as residents and fellows and even as faculty is is really what what is borderline pancreas cancer? Um, And maybe, you know, Caitlin, I mean, when you think of it, what what is your definition or what are the definitions of borderline pancreas adenocarcinoma? So there are several different ways of looking at the definitions. I think first is from an anatomic definition of borderline resectability. And there are different guidelines for different institutions and, and different um, uh, governing bodies like the HPBA, the SSO, MD Anderson has its own set of definitions for borderline resectability. Um, and the way I really think about it is based on tumor involvement with the SMV portal vein, tumor involvement of the SMA, and tumor involvement of the celiac axis. And so for me, from an anatomic standpoint, I think of borderline resectability as those tumors that are involving the portal vein SMV but are reconstructable, or tumors that are abutting the SMA or celiac axis less than 180 degrees, although it can uh, involve the celiac axis greater than 180 degrees as long as it doesn't involve the aorta and doesn't involve the GDA. 
And then the other way that we at MD Anderson often think about borderline resectability is not only as an anatomic criteria, but based on tumor biology and uh, condition of the patient. So if there's an elevated CA199 in a patient who has what is seemingly a resectable tumor, we would consider that a borderline resectable B based on biology. Or if the patient is not necessarily a good surgical candidate, meaning that uh, their performance status is low, we would consider that a borderline resectable C or conditional uh, borderline resectability. So there are a lot of ways to think about borderline resectability. I guess when there's four different staging groups or four different staging definitions that are most commonly used, it it really begs the question of, does it matter anymore? Um, And is this more just for clinical trials, which I think is incredibly important? I think as the time has gone by, it probably doesn't matter as much as it used to. And I think that's with the the onset of kind of becoming more standard of care, the use of neoadjuvant therapy, either neoadjuvant chemotherapy or chemoradiation therapy. Um, so why, Gilbert, in your, in your mind's eye, why would you give neoadjuvant therapy either chemotherapy or chemoradiation therapy to a patient with borderline pancreas cancer? So the real idea behind all of this is um, pancreatic cancer is a systemic disease. And so for patients who have borderline resectable disease, um, the concern is that despite getting a negative margin in the operating room, um, these patients are still at high risk of uh, recurrence. And usually the recurrence is distal recurrence. And so um, based on this idea that patients may already have micrometastatic disease when they go to the operating room for surgery, neoadjuvant therapy gives them the chemotherapy and the treatment that they need to treat the, the, the regional or metastatic disease they may have so that a surgery will really benefit them in the long term. Yeah, and I think it's you're going to hear this wor- these words of anybody that's in surgical oncology, it's biology, right? And there's idea of this test of biology. Um, I think it can be overused. Uh, With pancreas cancer, it's probably underused. And that I agree that I think with pancreas cancer, especially with locally advanced or borderline pancreas cancer, um, it's really is about biology because this is a systemic disease. Um, And I think there's nothing that gives us more kind of consternation as, as folks who do hepatobiliary pancreatic surgery is, is, is having, doing a resection, then having something come back right away uh, with, with metastatic disease. So I think you're right. I think it's this ability of creating an R0 resection. I think it's to try to weed out or, or stratify folks that are going to have micrometastatic or metastatic disease right away. Um, and, it's also what what a, what would be another reason, Caitlin, besides kind of what 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 Gilbert was saying, besides the biology issue. What what really from a I know this is kind of a what am I what am I what I am mean, I uh, guessing what am I what am I thinking kind of thing? No, I think, really wants to do, but well, hopefully, I'm guessing what you're thinking, and that not only from a biology standpoint, but I think it allows an opportunity to optimize the patient for surgery. And so I think there's this 
there's this misconception that chemotherapy is going to make the patients weak. And and that's not how neoadjuvant chemotherapy should be. Um, The patient should tolerate it relatively well, and it gives an opportunity uh, to participate in prehabilitation programs to to optimize uh, surgery for patients who may not be the best surgical candidates. Yeah, no, I agree. That wasn't exactly what I was thinking, but it's right. That's actually probably a better point than I was thinking is... um, what I, what I was also thinking is, is a lot of times, and I think this is, is it was anecdotal when I, in my training of thinking about it. And then somebody did a, a beautiful study a couple of years back in the SEER, using just the SEER Medicare database or the data set, the administrative data set. And the problem is, is, is less than 50% of folks after, after they have a pancreas resection, and most of this is in pa- patients undergoing a pancreatic lutinectomy, actually receive adjuvant therapy. Um, and for a variety of reasons, a lot of times from complications after the after a Whipple, you know, thirty percent ish patients have a, a fairly significant complication or any complication after a pancreatic lutinectomy. A lot of times, also patients they're kind of worn down. They they don't want further therapy. It's this fear of of getting adjuvant therapy. So it's a way as it's more of a test of biology of, of getting some therapy into patients. And I think you said it really well earlier when we were talking about the terminology of borderline resectability and that, yes, it's really important for clinical trials. And, you know, we we started seeing this term borderline resectability around 2006, 2008. And then following the introduction of that term, we see the first clinical trials for neoadjuvant therapy. And so prior to that, all of the trials in pancreas cancer had been adjuvant. So really defining, you know, that there are patients at high risk of failing with surgery alone and and improving with neoadjuvant therapy, defining that as borderline resectability has allowed us to introduce these clinical trials with neoadjuvant approaches. That is a, that's an incredible segue as kind of figuring out, you know, what trials are out there right now with neoadjuvant therapy, um, either chemotherapy or chemo radiation. Well, I think the first ones we see are kind of smaller trials that came out in around 2012 to 2014, which were trials by Jang that looked at neoadjuvant gemcitabine plus XRT and showed improvement in survival compared to upfront surgery. And then we had some single arm studies out of MGH, which looked at neoadjuvant, total neoadjuvant therapy with eight cycles of fulfarinex followed by um, um, radiation therapy in 50% of those patients. So some patients received uh, radiotherapy, some did not. And uh, they saw promising uh, overall survival of about 38 months in, in that cohort of patients. And then the Preopank study came about, which was uh, from like 2013 to 2016 that looked at neoadjuvant gemcitabine or gem uh, XRT with improved survival compared to upfront surgery. And then we have things like the SWOG study that compare uh, gemabraxane, uh, which is a newer regimen, and fulfirinox showing um, equivalent survival outcomes with the two regimens. So both of those are considered first-line therapies in, in pancreas cancer. 
And then more recently, the Alliance trial from Dr. Katz here at Anderson, which compared neoadjuvant fulfirinox eight cycles compared to seven cycles of fulfirinox with SPRT and showed improved um, 18-month survival in the chemotherapy alone arm compared to the chemotherapy XRT arm. Yeah, I think it's up until the Alliance trial, I, I would say that new adjuvant therapy really in pancreas cancer was really reliant on single institution trials or studies, or, or more importantly, some of the retrospective data. Um, I don't think there was incredible data. I think the preopank data was not great. Um, and I think it's a little bit of also the, the regimens that they use. The problem with the, all these trials is, is as a regimens and you know, kind of change going from using gemcitabine-based backbones to now fulfirinox, you know, giving the 5-FU, the renotecan, and the oxaloplatin, which is becoming more standard of care. Um, things have changed. Um, I think the one disappointing thing with the Alliance trial is, is I think, or maybe it's not even disappointing, it's maybe hopefully the final nail in the coffin, um, or at least maybe the first nail of this idea that radiation therapy offers a benefit in a neoadjuvant setting um, for borderline uh, pancreas cancer. And there's really, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, very little data that suggests um, that radiation therapy has a place in borderline pancreas cancer. And I think that goes back to what Gilbert, what you were saying is, is that it's, it's a systemic disease. Right, it's it's not so much a uh, a system. It's not so much a locally controlled disease. Um, so I think with if you can use increased biomarkers and, and identify a subgroup of patients that would have a benefit, I think that would be probably more applicable. So what, Gilbert? What are your you know your your budding surgical oncologist who's probably gonna I'm gonna end up working for someday in the near future, who, I mean, what, when you look at a patient, say with borderline pancreas cancer, um, and they're getting neoadjuvant therapy, but you have vein involvement, um, and you know, kind of that haziness around the superior mesenteric artery that seemingly every single patient has with borderline cancer, what, what kind of biomarkers or radiologic studies are you what would be triggering you as a go or no go for surgery after a patient's got say six to eight cycles of, of neoadjuvant therapy? Yeah. So that's a, it's a great question. I think early on we relied a lot on CT scans and MRIs. And um, I think as time went on, we realized as we kind of pushed the envelope with resection that these weren't always the most reliable markers of what's viable tumor and what's resectable and not resectable. And so um we need better biomarkers, but the one we have right now that works fairly well is CA199, a Lewis blood group antigen. And I think there's a lot of good data now and more that continues to come out that shows kind of CA199 is a good prognostic factor for the biology of the tumor and where um, patients who either normalize or um, have significant reductions in their CA199 have better outcomes and better um, response to therapy and survival following a resection. And so that that's really the big biomarker right now that I kind of hang my hat on when I think about how's this patient going to do with surgery. Is that what you're currently, your group is currently using down at MD Anderson, Caitlin? Yeah, I, I think a combination of radiographic and serologic response is, is what we look for. 
Um, I, Dr. Zay at UT Southwestern, I think, was actually one of the first to publish on CA199 response rates for uh, neoadjuvant therapy. And he found that, you know, patients who dropped their CA199 by f- greater than 50% uh, with neoadjuvant therapy, uh, that strongly predicted R0 resection. And then he also found that if they dropped it greater than 90% or normalized, that uh, there was a 29% rate of uh, major pathologic response. And then at Anderson, we've done some research, you know, combining radiographic response using resist criteria, as well as decrease in percent of tumor volume on a three-dimensional, as well as CA199. And in all of our patients who undergo resection following neoadjuvant therapy, there's about a 10% chance of major pathologic response. And uh, those patients who have a normalization of their CA199, a partial um, response based on resist criteria and a decrease in their tumor volume, those are the patients who are experiencing the major pathologic response. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what CA199 does because in, in in some of the data um, that was done at Pittsburgh, uh, as you mentioned by, by Dr. Zay um, and Amr Zurichat and their group, interestingly enough, in, in part of that study, um, a CA199 normalization with a decline of 50% during neoadjuvant therapy really, there was very little benefit or additional survival benefit when patients were giving adjuvant therapy. Um, so it really calls it, you know, I don't think it's made it to a so-called prime time, but it really calls in a question, really, do you need to give folks adjuvant therapy in that patient group? And then in the folks that didn't normalize uh, with the decline, um, they actually had an incredible benefit with it, with uh, adjuvant therapy. Um, so you know, I don't think we're quite ready for that yet um, to to use CA199 as the ultimate biomarker for adjuvant therapy. But I think that a lot of us feel a lot more comfortable, um, especially if somebody is kind of borderline opt- borderline from a performance status after a big a big resection. And, and most of the stuff we're talking about is more of a pancreas resection uh, of the head of the pancreas and not the uh, the distal pancreatectomy. Yeah, and I, I think that's interesting, and I think there's going to be a lot more to come in in that realm of research because, and I'm personally interested in response to therapy, whether that's CA199 or pathologic response, and who would benefit from adjuvant therapy. And I think there are different ways to think about it. You know, there are some medical oncologists here at Anderson who actually think that the patients who had good response to therapy are the ones who will benefit more from getting additional therapy because they're most likely to be the long-term survivors and they've already responded or patients that have a low uh, positive lymph node ratio will respond better to adjuvant therapy than those who have a high lymph node ratio positivity. And sometimes we don't even give chemotherapy to the ones with the higher positive lymph node ratio because there are studies out there suggesting that they don't benefit from additional therapy because they didn't respond in the first place. So it is interesting to think about that. And I think that's where research is headed in pancreatic cancer. So I think we're I think the three of us are becoming a lot less nihilistic about pancreas cancer. Um, and I hope the audience sees that although there isn't 
as, as kind of one of my mentors, Peter Allen said, putting the tail and, and pancreas cancer curves. Um, I, I think that's coming. I think as the chemotherapy is becoming more effective, so to speak, um, we're becoming a lot more optimistic, if you can use that word. Uh, there actually may be, as the chemotherapy becomes more effective, believe it or not, it might, the pendulum might swing back to having more of a role for radiation. As folks are, are no longer developing such metastatic disease, um, you know, after getting, after receiving chemotherapy, there might be more of a role for local control with radiation. Um, so I guess the, you know, kind of talked a little bit about this idea of how we work patients up, um, how we give chemotherapy and really trying to get to the operating room. Um, and really the, the question is, is how do you approach these patients in the operating room is the big thing. Um, and, you know, with venous re resections and arterial resections, I don't, what are your thoughts on that, Caitlin? Oh, I have lots of thoughts. This is my favorite operation. Um, so I think first and foremost, um, it's very important to spend a lot of time studying the CT scan and really, you know, outlining how you're going to perform the surgery before you get in there and knowing all the tributaries to the veins, where they're located. You know, if the first jejunal vein is anterior or posterior to the SMA, really understanding where that vein is, you know, where the coronary is draining, where the IMV is draining, you have to plan out the surgery before you even go into the operating room. And so we have, we spent a lot of time at our preoperative conference, just uh, defining the anatomy and we draw out every single, uh, for every patient that undergoes an operation, we draw out their anatomy and we hang it up uh, on the IV pole during the case so that we know exactly what we're getting into. So that's first and foremost, you have to be prepared. When we're dealing with a pancreatic head mass that is involving the portal vein and SMV, um, I think it's really important uh, to plan on resecting the portal vein SMV. You may be lucky and it'll peel off. And I think with neoadjuvant therapy, we are able to save veins more than we were in the past. But that means prepping out uh, the neck for every operation in case you need an inner position graft with the uh, IJ. Um, and usually it involves an arterial first approach if you are going to need a portal vein resection. So you leave the tumor hanging on the portal vein. And the last thing you do before taking out that tumor is clamp the SMV, clamp the portal vein and the splenic vein, and then you're ready for reconstruction following that. So ultimately it's about preparation and knowing what you're going to do before you get in there um, and doing an arterial first approach compared to the standard Whipple procedure where we usually do the vein before the artery in a resectable tumor. Do so you guys routinely use a, a, a conduit for your reconstructions of your portal vein or, or no your kind of, you know, kind of rule of thumb for when, when you can primarily do an end to end or when you have to put a conduit in? So the majority of the cases that need a vein resection at Anderson, I would say most we do either a bovine pericardial patch or we do an end to end anastomosis. 
by mobilizing the portal vein and the splenic vein. Um, usually we use the cutoff of five centimeters. If there's a five centimeter gap uh, that's created with your resection, then we'll do an IJ interposition graft. Yeah, I think it's pretty rare, you know, I, at least in our experience that, that we've had to use a conduit. It's, I think, going higher to the bifurcation of the, the portal vein into the porta um, and making sure and really doing a, a nice Cattell brash where you're really kind of lifting it up. And it's, it's, I think it's most times, even with that, I know five centimeters seems to be the standard kind of cut off of, of putting tension on, but most times with, with taking the splenic vein, um, you know, with complete mobilization, you're most times you're able to do a, an end to a nice end to end, uh, an asymosis. The other thing that we consider when we're doing, uh, either an interposition graft or an end to end anastomosis is, do you need something like a splenorenal shunt following that? Um, and I think it's actually fallen out of favor. I think there's a, a lot of data and um, experience to suggest that the spleen will do just fine. But we often, following our reconstruction, uh, will feel the spleen. And if it feels plump, we'll go ahead and do a splenorenal shunt um, because there is the theoretical risk that you could have splenic rupture uh, following that. Yeah, usually I think most of the times it's okay. I think you're right. I think it probably has fallen out of favor a little bit. Um, and most of the time, just with collateralization alone, um, it, it, it kind of works, so to speak, um, where you don't have to, to plug that in. It probably just adds a level, a level of complexity. Uh, really, I think the big thing is, is to make sure you have good proximal and distal control. Uh, it's we're able to do a lot of these cases robotically, believe it or not. And I think it, the principles are the same. Open robotic, it's just a technique. And it's just about making sure to identify the first jejunal branch uh, and making sure, you know, if you need to take it, it's not, it's not the end of the world by any stretch. Uh, but making sure you have good, good control of the SMV distally and the portal vein proximally. Uh, so you don't get yourself in a world of hurt, uh, no question. What do you think about arterial resections? So that's that's the uh, it's kind of fallen out of it. Was in favor back in the 1980s with Joe Fortner at Memorial. Uh, it's kind of fallen out of favor now. Every meeting I go to, it's, it's seemingly somewhat into favor, depending on if you're on the eastern or western side of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that one, Kayla? My opinion is um, they should be done few and far between and only in very select patients. Um, I think that the, the risk of recurrence is really high in patients who have true locally advanced disease with greater than 180 degree arterial involvement. Um, the cases that I have done arterial reconstruction on are patients who had uh, a body tumor with involvement of the celiac axis um, and didn't have adequate flow through their GDA once we took the celiac. And so then we did a bypass in that patient, but I've not done any SMA um, reconstructions. There's a lot in the literature of people 
uh, doing arterial divestments. Um, and, and that seems to be the new buzzword in, in pancreas surgery. Um, but I think you really do have to weigh the risks and benefits. Um, you know, those patients are at high risk of recurrence and also, um, that can be extremely morbid and debilitating diarrhea and, and those type of things for patients with SMA involvement that you do greater than 180 degrees of arterial divestment. So you really have to think about all these things. You know, maybe in a young patient who has had great radiographic and serologic response, who you've counseled about the risks of these operations, I would consider it, but truly it's few and far between for me. I think we're talking more about head of the pancreas stuff, right? With the with the SMA involvement, it's it's. I remember being at a meeting earlier this year where where somebody had said uh, that was a big proponent of doing um, arterial reconstructions and and this divestment uh, procedure is if a patient didn't have diarrhea after a Whipple, he, he they didn't do the procedure properly. Um, because they didn't, meaning that they didn't take all the tissue around the SMA. I, I think, I wonder if that misses the point though. Um, usually when these tumors are involving the SMA, they're big, they're bulky, even after neoadjuvant therapy, um, they tend to, most of them have lymph node involvement and, and definitely as Gilbert, as you had said, micrometastatic disease. Um, so I, I, again, is local control really the most important thing? And I think, you know, again, when, when Dr. Fortner in the 70s had this idea of doing what they called a radical pancreatic odudinectomy, the morbidity and the mortality was incredibly high. I think still the mortality of, of an SMA resection overall in most hands and not in very select patients, you're looking at probably on the on the ballpark of one in five having a 90-day mortality. And, and really is that worth, you know, it's so-called, it's a long run for a short slide. Um, Especially when you have other options. I mean, Memorial has published data on definitive chemo radiation in these patients with pretty good long-term survival. And so when you have other options, I think you have to be highly selective of who you offer this very morbid operation. Yeah, I agree. I think we've gotten better um, with the operation, especially a pancreatic odontectomy. Uh, but I think adding that on, especially usually if you have to do an arterial resection, you also have to do the, the venous resection as well. They kind of go hand in hand. Um, I think it's a little bit different probably for uh, a modified Appleby or, or distal pancreatectomy and celiac access resection. Uh, it's, you know, even that, the mortality you're looking at, depending on the series, it's not insignificant. Um, you know, you're looking at anywhere between three to 5% or three to 15% 90-day mortality on a modified Appleby. Um, so I think you have to know that going in, you have to pick your patients properly. Um, they have to have, as you mentioned, Kaylin, um, to get new adjuvant therapy, have a, a good prehab process. Uh, what other options, Gilbert, are there in these patients with kind of locally advanced, and now we're kind of moving into locally advanced, um, or patients who are borderline and maybe still have arterial involvement? Um, what other what other alternatives other than radiation or chemotherapy are there out there right now? Yeah, one of the um, interesting modalities that has kind of ebbed and flowed in its popularity is the uh, IRE procedure, and it's really uh, 
not a ton of great data behind it, but just kind of an option for some of these patients where they may have a good serologic response and they're not resectable and haven't converted, but good performance status and otherwise progressing. And so um, IRE stands for irreversible electroporation. Um, and it's a procedure that mainly done out of the group in Louisville, but some other centers across the country have picked it up where um, it's it's an option for some patients that may give benefit. Yeah, I mean, what what do you think about IRE, uh, Caitlin? Are you are, is the group down at MD Anderson pursuing that? We are not. So uh, we do not use IRE, um, and I'll leave it to Gilbert since he's more of an expert on this topic than I am. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I think it's controversial at best. Um, I mean, there has been some data, uh, single institution data. I think it's a lot like anything with kind of a complex technology. It's really user dependent. Um, and I know folks are using it to kind of get a little bit of reduce the chance of local recurrence again. You know, does that make a difference in pancreas cancer? Probably not. Uh, there's been a meta-analysis uh, performed in the past, which, you know, you look at IRE plus chemotherapy or IRE alone. Um, there doesn't seem to really be, or IRE with or without chemotherapy, the chemotherapy arm seems to have exactly the same overall survival. Uh, but again, the critics will point out that this is mostly a, just because of it's a difficult procedure to learn and it shouldn't be done in all comers. Right now there's two clinical trials with IRE. Um, one is a registry trial, which I think is important. Um, if we're going to do it, we need to study it. Uh, so there's a registry trial comparing uh, standard of care for each institution and then comparing, and then also IRE after the institution's actually been trained. And then there's a randomized control trial, which likely will not reach accrual, but it's something obviously to think more about. Um, so I don't think IRE probably end all is the end all be all, uh, but in select patients, it may have some role um, once they've gotten enough uh, chemotherapy. So for, I think we kind of covered locally advanced uh, pancreas cancer. Again, another tough patient population. Uh, what questions do you two have about pancreas cancer? What would you like to talk about with locally advanced or borderline pancreas cancer? I, I mean, I think that we covered the topics uh, very well and, and pretty thoroughly. Um, I think it's important just for the listeners to know that, you know, as Gilbert said, there is a, an extremely high rate of uh, occult metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis, regardless of the stage of pancreas cancer. So I think a lot of academic surgical oncologists truly believe that most patients will benefit from neoadjuvant therapy and that selecting the right patient to operate on is the key to success uh, in these operations and long-term survival of the patients you operate on. So I think those are the, the takeaways uh, from all of this. Gilbert, what's your takeaway? Other than yeah, you I mean, want to do a lot more pancreas resections in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do. And I think uh, you touched on it earlier, but historically, there's been this nihilism around uh, pancreatic cancer, this sense of hopelessness and lack of options. But um, I think it's great we're seeing more surgical uh, trials and neoadjuvant trials and um, you know registry trials for different modalities and treatments that really are aimed at getting more options, more treatment uh, choices, and, and better outcomes for patients where historically it was you know kind of written off as nothing more. So um, I'm excited for the the new era of uh, clinical trials, especially involving surgeons, and uh, let's let's see where the di- the data takes us. Oh, speaking of that, I am also equally excited, and I think we didn't hit on this, but I think you know ctDNA analysis and vaccine trials will definitely come into play and be an important uh, part of our management of pancreatic cancer patients. So I think overall, there's a lot more excitement. I think that's my takeaway. Uh, when I was, you know, a fellow and a and a resident, I think it was very nihilistic. Um, I think as the surgical techniques have gotten better, I think the chemotherapy agents are gotten have gotten much much better. With fulfurinox being one of them, I think there was a fear when that first came out that it was only being able to be used in very healthy patients. You know, patients who would could run a marathon. Now I think we're seeing it in, you know, I think the oldest patient we've given full Ferenox to is, you know, approaching three figures near a hundred years of age. And so I, I don't think there's such a, a nihilism with pancreas cancer as we once thought. So it's exciting as, as my time wanes down as a surgical oncologist and Gilbert's and, and Caitlin's are now reaching their prime. Hopefully they'll be able to make, uh, make positive strides in helping pancreas cancer. Or as we say at MD Anderson, make cancer history. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that note, we will end this podcast. And thank you so much for the listeners for joining us. Uh, And thanks again. I'm I'm, I'm overjoyed to do this both with with Gilbert and Caitlin. They're two of my my favorite people um, in surgical oncology. Um, Until next time. Good night. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.